We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. Episode number 36 of Lion Legacy, and this is the first episode of 2022. Good to see you, my friend Ross, in the new year. J- Jared, let me be the uh, the last to wish you a happy new year. You know, <laughs> I actually was watching on a completely unrelated note. I'm catching up on some old Curb Your Enthusiasm episodes, and I think there was one that I watched where somebody wished Larry David a happy new year. And it was like February something. And he like, it's February. What are you wishing me? Happy New Year. What What, what is the right? Like, I don't know. Do you still say it in emails now at work? Or do you I, I I usually used, go one weekend? It's too late. Yeah. Usually it's like a week, maybe like 10 days, two weeks. We're, we're recording this on January 17th. I think it's too late. It's done. I agree. It is probably too late. Now I just say, oh, hope you, you and your family are staying safe and healthy. Which we've been saying that for two, two years. Two now. years. But anyway, Jared, I'll be the, the last to wish you a happy new year. Thank you, my friend. And same to you and Jess and, and the family. And uh, looking forward to kicking off this new year with more Penn State podcasts. That's right. There's so many, as we've seen in 2021, with the great list of guests that we had and just awesome alums with great stories. And, you know, there's more out there. We're going to find them and we're going to bring them to you. And if you know them, email yeah. us. Yeah. Roar at lionlegacypodcast.com. It's roar like the sound the lion makes r-o-a-r very good at lionlegacypodcast.com yep perfect perfect hey before we we get into our guest and we have a great one lined up today we touch on usually penn state football every once in a while but yep. i think it's only right we actually touch on penn state volleyball that's right so we were jared and i were chatting and i said hey we need to bring up the announced retirement of ross rose the uh, penn state women's volleyball head coach and let me just read you some of these statistics because they are astounding first of all coach rose was the head of the penn state women's volleyball program for 43 years which is just awesome seven ncaa titles they had four straight championships at some point 17 big 10 championships he led Penn State to 41 NCAA tournaments. There's 100, over 100 All-America honors, 14 Big Ten Conference Players of the Year, two, over 200 academic All-Big Ten selections. The accolades go on. It's just really awesome. Uh, what a great program. I'm sure they'll, they'll continue you know, his legacy on and on. But yeah, just a, a shout out to Coach Russ Rose of the Women's Volleyball Program for just a, a really unbelievable career. I got to say, I I used to go to Penn State volleyball games quite a bit, and that atmosphere was electric there. The women were amazing athletes, always a strong and competitive team, and uh, yeah, got even got even stronger as the years went by. As you mentioned, four straight NCAA championships. Imagine starting your freshman year and you win four in a row. Yeah, unbelievable, truly unbelievable, and. I know everyone um, that has come in contact with Coach Rose always spoke really highly of him from a mentorship standpoint. I certainly appreciate everything that he's done for the university as well as 
all the players he's come in contact with. So yeah, enjoy your retirement, whatever he's up there to. There you go. He yep. deserves it. Forty three exactly. years. Exactly. I, I hope he goes to sit on a beach somewhere. You know, exactly. Not? Let's hope. Speaking though of athletes and athletes' performance, we have a, a very interesting angle on athlete performance and just performance in general, actually. Yeah, for sure. Uh, great segue. So we spoke with this week, Roshana Moss. She's the founder and CEO of Modern Muse. It's a mental health and performance coaching company. And she tells us about what she does. We get into the uh, kind of the specifics of her approach, what's involved today with, with mental health. And in the sports world, she also got into corporations. So she tells us about some of the similarities and differences when she's coaching mental health and performance coaching, I should say, between those in the corporate setting and those in the athletic setting. She had an interesting career, zigged and zagged a little bit. I'm not going to give her resume away, but we'll get into it. And she tells us where she was earlier in her career. She spent some time as an entrepreneur. She'll tell us about that. And just a lot of different, Jared, I think you, you said it the right way, different angles on, on sports psychology that we hadn't really thought of. We see the output of it. We see the, uh, the athletes and, you know, on TV or, you know, we're in person and, but there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes under the hood, so to speak for them to become elite in their field. And with that, we're sure that you'll enjoy the episode with Roshana Moss. All right, let's welcome Roshana Moss, a double Penn State grad, a BA in psychology and kinesiology in 2002, and then a master's of sports psychology in 2005. Roshana is a mental performance coach and the founder and CEO of Modern Muse. Like a true entrepreneur, who has had her hands in many things, Roshana also was a pure bar studio owner. Before going out on her own, she worked at two very prestigious companies in Nike and IMG. I also want to mention that we're recording this on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, so it's only fitting to feature a talented and well-accomplished Black female in honor of Dr. King. Thanks for joining us on Lion Legacy, Roshana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Roshana, thanks for being on with us. Couldn't agree more speaking with you on such an important day as we, we honor the legacy of Dr. King. Let's dive into it. You hear a lot about mental health, sports psychology, mental conditioning, probably now more than ever. What does it mean to be a mental performance coach and share with us how you specifically help athletes and coaches? So I can tell you what a mental performance coach is for myself. <laughs> I think that there is quite a large scale of what mental performance coach means these days. So from my perspective, I come in to pretty much elevate someone's performance through a psychological and mental lens. So essentially as humans, every three seconds, you have a thought, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we're using our brain quite a bit and we are not acting in life. Sometimes we think, oh, we've got these physical instincts, et cetera. It's still going through a thought filter first, Therefore, that's where I try to focus. So for example, with athletes are physically dominant. That's how they live their lives, right? By being the strongest, the fastest, the best skill with whatever it is that they do. But that still comes with thought first. So my job is to say, all right, if we're going to increase your performance, how do we break down the layers, some of your limiting thoughts, your current routines, and shift your perspective to actually break something open that you didn't know was there. And now you're able to reach new levels of performance. 
that goes with athletes, that goes with CEOs, executives, coaches. It doesn't matter who you are, but if you're a high performer, essentially that's what a mental performance coach is for myself. And can you share like specifically how you work with athletes and coaches and then certainly want to get into your corporate, the corporate side as well? Absolutely. So with an athlete or anyone that we're working with, it's super important to always start with where someone is, right? So let's say from a mental performance perspective, there's a scale from one to 10. Some people might be starting at a five. Some people might be starting at an eight. You can't take a five to an eight with one session, right? So we first have to recognize where is that individual? So a lot of times with an athlete, what comes up is, hey, I'm just not feeling really great about my performance. Let's take football, for example, because, hey, we're from Penn State, therefore we play football school. (laughs) So an athlete might come back from an injury and your body feels different. You're not sure what to do about that. Your ankle feels like it's foreign because it's not acting in the same manner that it was before. And you can feel that. Therefore, how you make lateral movements or cuts could shift. What we need to do then is rather than making your ankle a challenge, something that is foreign, we need to figure out how do we connect you to this actual injury itself, okay? This is gonna sound strange, but for example, with your ankle, we actually need to give your ankle a voice so that the athlete can connect to the ankle and say, yes, this movement does work for me or it does not. We know that oftentimes athletes will return from injury prematurely. And what happens when they return prematurely? They get re-injured because number one, they've got bracing effects to accommodate for that actual injury, or they might overestimate and just say, I have to push because I've got to prove this to coach. If we don't give the athlete the space as well as the awareness to connect to that body part and give that party part, body part a voice to know its actual status, they may not perform properly because they haven't assessed that body part properly. So that's a very simple example of what it's about, but it's trying to connect mind, body, and soul just to make it very fluid. But again, it's your thoughts that we're starting with to say, let's take a different perspective on how you're looking at your ankle so that you connect, give it the right amount of time, then also don't default to bracing effects know when it's time to return. And now you can overcome because you're connected to your ankle. It's going to serve you and you come back better than before. Very interesting. And do you also work with athletes outside of the return to injury? You always hear about the LeBron James, the Kobe's, the Michael Jordans of the world, and just like their ability from a mental aspect to take their game to levels beyond elite athletes. Absolutely. There's definitely a range of topics. Injury definitely is one of them. And I wouldn't even say that it's necessarily the predominant one, but it is one. Relationships are a huge one, whether those are relationships with family members, with significant others, any type of relationship that can be taxing to us can actually affect our performance. Another, I would say, is very like basic levels of mental performance, which is like, how are you spending your time? So what does your pregame routine look like? What does your postgame routine look like? How are you spending your time? Their relationship with the coaches, that's a big one because Mm -hmm. it is so uh, common to see our childhood 
actually show up in those situations. Or even, let's say, cultural experiences that we have had show up in coaches' experience, where how the coach speaks to me, what the coach says, it, it slices so deep. It triggers something from way before, and now the athlete's completely thrown off. So there is a huge host. The coaching one is, I would say, probably the biggest because what athlete doesn't have a coach? And then relationships. As human beings, we all have relationships. So that's definitely something to be very just like aware of, even though it's not specific to their performance on the field. We've got to address what's going on off the field as well, because the athlete is holistic. It's not like they only live on the field. And I think we sometimes as common people, right, don't always recognize that an athlete is a whole person and part of their life is the same life that we live too. So we need to address that so that they can be better athletes. Just like for us, we need to address what's going on at home and in our lives in general in order to be better when we show up at work. It's the same thing. Yeah, like that whole person mentality as opposed to just the athlete on the court or on the field. You also mentioned you work with corporations. Would love to know a little bit more about that and then some of the similarities and differences between the the corporate and the athlete performance world. Yep. So I actually have a, a business partner in my business now, Kristen Lundy, who is also a Penn State grad and we met in kinesiology class. Yes. Um, so we've been friends for 20 years and now we're in business together. And I sold my studios for my previous business in 2019. Then we hit 2020. Okay. It's January, February. I knew I was going to go full forge into mental performance business and was already playing around in it. Had no idea the pandemic is coming. Had about three corporate contracts. I decided I wanted to start in corporate because my entire resume was sports health wellness. After being an entrepreneur, I was like, okay, now there's a whole nother host of clients to apply these lessons and tools. So let's start with corporate contracts. That's a really great place to scale. And it's also like, there, there's a lot of things that are repetitive. So I knew that we could figure that out pretty quickly. Pandemic hit, two out of three contracts got dropped. I had a, oh crap moment. And then everything turned around actually after the George Floyd incident. So we actually scaled that business pretty quickly because there were a lot of clients that needed us because now we were looking at performance. So if you think about a business and like typical HR, you've got performance goals, and certain system of processes within the HR department. We come in on as an added layer to go deeper or to help the CEOs and, and executives truly be leaders. And then same thing with like director level, how do we maximize your performance so that the business can run as efficiently as possible? So we're technically in the people business. So it's not that much different than the athlete business. There's just a lot more system of processes that we're putting in place. And for us, I think it really took off because now so many of these companies needed a cultural lens because what was going on within companies in terms of just like psychological warfare of what people were experiencing and going through, it was deep and not everyone was armed with the tools to help people through the cultural experience, no matter what race you are. It didn't matter. Maybe you had people you needed to support, or maybe you were someone who was underrepresented population and was just suffering because of what you were seeing and watching. We were able to apply our diversity, equity, and inclusion lens that we're trained in to the performance for the corporations themselves. 
Yeah, that must be such a valuable tool and business that you're providing. As you think about the last two years, right? You mentioned the George Floyd incident. You mentioned the pandemic and just all of us now going from being in offices surrounded by people to working remotely and having to look at you know screens all day. And I think we've all probably taken a hit, multiple probably hits, as it relates to, to mental health and the performance of, of our jobs as well. Absolutely. It's very true. And I've seen so much in mental performance over 20 years. This experience was different because this was the first time where I was seeing such a virtual world and everyone having to pivot so quickly. And also the pandemic did not pick specific ages, specific races. Like it didn't. It was the first time where I saw so many people in the trenches together they may have had different perspectives on how to how to deal with it and how to manage it, but it was such a global experience that in some ways there was a peace and appreciation for people being able to understand that essence and basics of one another. So in some ways, I'm really thankful for the good that came out from a mental performance perspective. Yeah, so valuable. Over your 20 years, without you know mentioning names, are there one or two stories that you're most proud of in terms of you really helping a, a client to the, the next level? I really think about it more so in the sense of when I'm working with someone, whatever happens was already in them. It more so was an experience where maybe I was able to hear something that they weren't able to hear in their own head before. And then they're able to make a realization to push themselves to the next level. So rarely do take credit for it. And I also think that my satisfaction and passion is from seeing people surprise themselves. So I don't think there are any experiences I would say stand out a lot more than the other, because I'm going to be honest, it's pretty repetitive. Rarely do I get a really unique situation. It's different because of technology now. And for example, in the last year, NIL, that changed things a little bit because now we had to think about, all right, how are these athletes processing that they now can be a business, right? And they now are making money and they have to think about how they show up as a brand in a completely different way because they can get paid now. So those things change, but most of the scenarios are the same. My favorite scenario is, this goes back to football again, and there is one athlete I think about in particular, but when you think of professional football, there's a lot that is already scripted for the athlete. They know where they have to be in terms of location. They know what date they have to be there. Once they get there, they're then given a schedule. So they know exactly how they're spending their time. And then when it's like, okay, well, what are you doing towards that time or during the time? that is also prescribed, right? So it's a full script, which doesn't always lend time to figure out how do I manage myself? How do I manage my time? And for everything that's happening outside of football, how do I then manage that? So even with finances, yes, a lot of them have financial advisors because of the amount of money that they are making. And so it needs to be managed, but how many are taking a very involved perspective towards 
how their money is being managed. So that's just to give an example. But with one of the athletes in particular, he definitely had the scripted mindset where it's like, hey, I show up. This is what I do. I'm happy. I enjoy spending my money. I enjoy having time with, you know, my friends. And then the contract, the next contract, this is what every NFL guy goes for, right? The next contract was eventually going to come up. And so I think there was a little future thought because he was very just like present, maybe even a bit impulsive. And as soon as that comes up where it's like, wait a second, these are not guaranteed contracts. I have no idea if I'm going to end up staying with this team or if I'm going to be on a different team. Some questions will start to arise. And he had a very casual approach to that next stage. We happened to have a conversation. He was very skeptical about me. What do you do? What is mental performance? All of that, which is also very normal because sometimes people are like, who's this shrink? And are you going to get in my head and mess it up? (laughs) So I had to uh, read the room and allow him to get comfortable. And eventually he asked the questions and was like, hey, can we have some some time to, to chat? And so we did. And the first chat was definitely more so just about getting to know one another. And I was even challenged. He even challenged me on mental performance and whatever he thought about it, even some of it that he thought was BS. And I leaned into it and was like, yes, absolutely. Left time open. If he wants to connect again, we can. He actually pursued it to connect again. That second time that it was time to talk, he was much more clear and targeted on his pursuits of that next stage. And because we work with corporations and athletes, we see a lot of crossover. And for him, it was appropriate to advise him towards the CEO mindset, okay? So it's different to come in as a player and be a passive player. Again, you give me the script, that's what I do. Versus a player that follows the script in order to maintain their job and their position, but adds the plus where they elevate to take an active role in what's happening in their life. And that's what happened with this player. It was, okay, you have a new contract coming up. Who is your agent? Is your agent sufficient to make that next contract happen? How then are you spending your time? If you're trying to maximize your money and if you're trying to maximize your contract, when you're not on the field and you're not practicing, but you're still at the building, what does your relationship look like with the coaches? Are you making those associations? Coaches aren't just judging you based on only what happens on the field. There's other personality traits that matter in decision-making. So we're applying that corporate mindset to the athlete for them to realize, oh, wait a second, I'm the boss of this. I'm not just taking script because someone else is the boss of me. I get to be the boss of myself. All right. That makes sense, that differentiation. So now, okay, so now he translated to, I have more power. I have more control. And so let me utilize my decision-making to manifest the vision that it is I want. And that's exactly what he did. And it was quick. So it was one of my favorite stories more because he was so skeptical and went really quickly (laughs) to the CEO mindset. And the next thing you know, it's like, new agent, new contract, performing like incredible. And it was just a, it was just a shift to say, okay, wait, I am empowered to make these decisions. I love that. It, you know, Ross, it reminds me. So we had Justin King on a few episodes ago, as you may recall, Penn State. Justin uh, was freshman, I think when I was last year, grad school. Uh, I think, yeah, I think he started in yep. 2005 and then yeah, went on to the NFL right. and yep. 
he spoke about his journey as well to being that kind of very scripted right at Penn State yep. to this business mindset. And now he's a, a very successful, he finished his NFL career and has a very successful business as well. So he also spoke about that shift from a player in a kind of system to a, a true business person. So fascinating yep. that you touch on that as well. And Jared, I think that's becoming more uh, common. It was not 20 years ago. That was just not the norm. It was good enough in so many ways to get the contract. And then you think about things off the field after football. Now, as quickly as our market is running, and this is not just a sports, right? It doesn't matter what market you look at. The technology has sped everything up to where it's also made the athlete themselves evolve. Now they've right. got access, right? to make things happen that were harder to access before. And I think as the success has grown amongst certain athletes that are diversified, that then makes their teammates interested as well. Right. Um, so I think this is becoming more common in general. And I imagine a school like Penn State, which seems to approach from a distance, this is my perspective, is like a whole person as opposed to just like a football player or a soccer player that's probably an advantage of going to a university like Penn State that has the the tools and the framework and the philosophy in place. Yeah, we've been so lucky with our coaches, right? Joe Paterno, I know, spoke about what it meant to be the whole man. I can't speak too much about the O'Brien days because that was short and I wasn't right. integrated into the university as much. Now with, with Coach Franklin, he himself is dynamic as a coach, right? He's not just coaching. We know that he is very involved in the community and business and so forth. That just trickles right down to your team. 100%. I'm also curious about, and I think you started to touch on it earlier. You think about whether it's somebody, an athlete that's at that great level that maybe wants to get become elite or, but I guess more so, what if you have a good athlete that maybe the coaches say, hey, this guy can be, or this woman can be, they can go from good to great. Is there a different, approach there when it's somebody maybe where you're, you're trying to get to the root of the cause and say, look, well, what is it that from a mental perspective that you need to do or change your habits, whatever it might be? Is there like a different approach there from between the good to great to the great to elite? I think it might go back to that scale I was talking about before of the one to 10, where are they starting? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when someone is good and hasn't seen their great yet, it could be mastery and mastery could be more so physical or skill set, et cetera. But if I'm looking at it from a mental perspective, I'm going to start with one, figuring out what their belief of self is. Do they have the vision of great, right? What is their level of complacency? What are they hearing around them? What examples are they looking at that look like them? And then the other part would be willingness to work, right? Because what we do know about great is they are putting in a lot of effort in some way to be great. Some might be more so into watching film. Some might sit at that free throw line and shoot shot after shot. There are so many different approaches to great but in some capacity, you're going to have to put in that work of mastery 
And so the question will be, is that already happening and it just hasn't hit yet? Or have they not gotten to that work ethic? How did you get into this? I'm curious, right? I know you were an athlete growing up. Where did this passion develop from? It's kind of weird. So first and foremost, I am an only child. Second, I grew up playing tennis. Between the two of those, that meant a lot of time for introspection, a lot of time with self. And it was sixth grade, so I was what? I guess like 11. And I was completely in love with the game of tennis. It's like I went to school and then it was time for tennis. That's all I cared about. And if I think about my tennis career, I was dominant when it came to strength and speed. Strategy was a little bit more of my deficit. And strategy to me was mental. And that's when I started to get curious because I was thinking about how do I master myself? And as I was looking at life and just, I think I also liked philosophy in general. I just had a natural passion for it. That made me say, whoa, psychology is really cool. But the psychology on the court is really cool. So then I'm like, oh yeah, that's like sports psychology. Why well, do not even know sports psychology existed? So in my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing called sports psychology that I figured out and created whatever else. Had no idea that sports psychology already existed. Did my research and I was like, okay, Rashana, well, obviously you're not creating this because that was 1991. Nobody was talking about sports psychology or at least the people I was around, they were not. So once I figured out that it existed, then I started to understand a little bit about what was going on. It was mainly within golf, a little bit of tennis and within the U.S. Olympic Committee, you would hear a little bit about sports psych. But there was this terrible, awful, <laughs> just like assumption about sports psychology. It was like, oh, who are these shrinks coming on the field? And so there was a huge disconnect between the sport itself, the coaches and the athletes versus the sports psychologists. It was not aligned whatsoever. I was 11. So I figured by the time I got to school, maybe things would shift. Eh, a little bit, definitely not enough. I was really lucky to, to start my experience young. I was 20 years old. Tennis ended for me my junior year. And actually on Penn State's campus, we had Dr. David Yukelson at the time. Yeah, and he I was a sports like, yeah. yeah, right? So boisterous and just like an awesome personality. I got very lucky because I was able to, number one, work with the tennis team because of those relationships there but then also with him. And so to shadow him and figure out what his job was and what he did, he really took me under his wing. And then on the academic side, I had Dr. Slobinoff, who was more so on the neuroscience side, but I had two amazing people. So I was 20 years old and at Penn State, informally working with athletes here and there. And I was only there for my junior and senior year undergrad. And then for grad school, I ended up with a full ride and actually stayed there for my master's and got right in. Because once you're in your master's, you're working on your thesis and so forth. So you have to be working with the sports. So that's pretty much how I got into it. And honestly, I got into IMG because of Penn State as well. But it was because of being an only child and playing tennis and my own experience of wanting to master myself that made me discover sports psychology. That's fascinating. I, I remember Dr. Yulkelson as well, because I think he came into to one of the mm -hmm. kiddies classes and spoke. And I just remember how hard that job must be because 
every athlete that goes to Penn State is an elite athlete and is probably number one, number two in their high school, right? And then they come to Penn State and everyone's number one and number two. And you probably are, most of them are, you're riding the bench freshman year, maybe sophomore year. And I can't imagine psychologically, you're the top of your game all, all throughout elementary, junior high school, and then you get to this great university and you're surrounded by everyone that's equally as great and how hard that must be on someone who's 18 and 19 or 20 years old to go through on a daily basis, right? Of course, that's that transition of the next chapter. And that happens every time they transition. So you go, just like you said, from high school to college. Now it's like even playing field, you are completely wiping that slate clean. That number one that you were in your high school almost doesn't even matter. You have to prove yourself again. And like in tennis, you get ranked. So who's playing number one singles, number two singles, number three singles, right? And same thing with like football, for example, you've got starters and the ones who maybe don't. Okay. So you're fighting for your position. Then for those who leave college and go pro, same thing, clean slate again, you've got to start and prove yourself all over again. So in college specifically, we're still fairly immature emotionally right we're talking about 18 19 yeah, like you exactly said. okay mm-hmm. for yourself if you're not if you're if you go and you're not an athlete and you're entering college that already can be somewhat awkward you're leaving home you're faced with okay i'm leaving home with these values and morals but now i'm in college so are these values and morals actually mine or are they my parents i'm defining myself i'm away from home so now i don't have to do this that and the other Am I still going to do this, that, the other when I'm alone, you know, when I'm by myself? So you're going through all of that plus being an athlete. And technically you have a job. If you are an athlete on campus, especially at Penn State, you have a full time job. Completely. So that is a very dynamic and complex experience. If you're playing football, now the school's revenue is on your shoulders. You've got over 100,000 people in in the stands screaming at you. So you want to talk about a mental game? That's the loudest state. I mean, it's insane. I can't imagine, right? And you're 18 Mm -hmm. years old, 19 years old. You're in the public eye, right? It's got to feel great when you're doing amazing things. But when you have a bad game, you are under a microscope big time. Yeah. And you're not only at the stadium, but then you've got to go home and watch ESPN. And now we got social media in school. (laughs) It was like, all right, I'll read about it in the newspaper now. Yeah. All the channels. That's a good segue. So you you actually worked with the football team when you were, I guess, when you were in grad school or shortly thereafter? So it was while I was in grad school. Yes. While you were in grad Um, school. So, right. So it wasn't like an employment under the football team. It was as a graduate student with Dr. Slobinoff. We had a lab within the Penn State football building where we were looking at concussion or traumatic brain injury. Okay. So this is 2000, I'm going to say 2002 to 2005 that I was in that lab. And um, it felt like we were mad scientists in a way. And that's more so sloping off. I would say that I was guided by him. I am not naturally a scientist, but I appreciated the technology that they were applying to traumatic brain injury. This was definitely before you were hearing a bunch of talk about CTE. It was not Mm -hmm. really there yet. And it also was before 
the robust protocols were being applied for concussion. So what he did and remind, remind you, he's neuroscience background. So that's why he was inspired by this, right? He was using virtual reality to actually test the function, like the brain function pre and post concussion. This work's still being done too. Like in the kinesiology lab, it's pretty amazing. And he's got lots of articles pretty much talking about this work. And he was also with George Salvaterra and Wayne Sebastianelli have also been involved with the work as well. But essentially what we would do in this um, room was there was a screen where we would project a room, like a 3D room, so that we could shift the movement itself. And then they were on a balanced platform that had an EEG cap. And we were measuring the brainwaves based on EEG cap. And you could actually see the differences pre-concussion and post-concussion. You could actually post-concussion see how the brain was actually healing over time. And this goes back to what I was talking about before, returning to play too early. This oftentimes happens with concussion. And so if someone has a concussion, that's not the time to return to play because the brain is literally trying to heal, rewire, et cetera. If you end up with another concussion too soon after that, you compound the injury. And that's when we start to run into problems. Overall, the body is fairly resilient. We know that, but it's just the compounded effects of not allowing the brain to heal that can cause the problems. And for me, that was part of you know my thesis was looking that looking at that over time. So I think we were also there in a beautiful time because of the support that we had from George Salvaterra and Wayne Sebastianelli. And so it felt like everyone was truly concerned about the well-being of the athlete. That makes a difference in these situations. And I know with certain protocols that we have seen more recently, it may look like a great protocol, but what is the actual result? And if we're not protecting the athlete, then we're just not doing them justice. When you think back to the some of the techniques that you learn more on that mental health performance side, as I guess maybe less so on the science aspect of it, though that you encountered or whether the team applied when you were at Penn State, as opposed to as time went on 15, 20 years later, some of the techniques and practices that you're employing now, how do you see that evolution? So it's funny because I would say that in terms of evolution, it actually doesn't feel like it's that much, but let me explain further. Sports psychologists who were in it for the right reasons. And when I say the right reasons, again, they cared about the athlete. It wasn't because you can then claim you're in sports and that you're working with athletes and you don't have a groupie mentality. And when I say groupie mentality, I'm not speaking specifically of women. I'm saying women and men. It does not matter. It's just that mentality, period, right? If you are in it for the right reasons, you have likely known what to do for a long time. Sports psychology is not new. Virtual reality is not new. Mantras and visualization, meditation is not new. It is simply that it is being accepted now in the modern world. That is what I think the differentiation is the level of acceptance and that we are starting to look at the human as more holistic than we did before. And it's not just in sports, 
I'm seeing the same thing in corporations, right? Like there's just like in sports, there's some teams that still don't really want to look at the mental side of it. There's some corporations that still don't want to look at the mental side of the employee, but there are more corporations and more sports teams that are, and that is normalizing the conversation, which now allows us to bring the conversation to light. Yeah, it's great to see that being more normalized and hopefully more and more teams and corporations really take up on the mental health, mental performance aspect. And yeah, so the, important. The only other thing I would say too, in terms of the, the change in tools or the evolution of tools is the access to the tools mm. that has also shifted as a byproduct of like social media, technology, et cetera. Information is just traveling that much quicker and you've got different platforms in order to access it. Yep. Definitely a benefit right there for sure. I, I want to switch gears a little bit, touch on your time at, at Nike. And this is a title that I've never heard before. Perceptual <laughs> analyst mm -hmm. in the Nike sports research lab. Share a little bit about what that role is about. Okay. So let's talk about sports research lab first. You remember back in the day when there was a Gatorade commercial? Yeah, yeah, the athlete on the treadmill, and they're all hooked sure. up, like Ga all these Gatorade Sports Science Institute, right? Yeah. Okay, I, I like literally identical to that is the Nike Sports Research Lab. Okay. If you walk in, you're going to be completely overwhelmed <laughs> because of the amount of just like apparatuses, technology, science. It's insane. It's like taking human rats <laughs> and just putting um, all these <laughs> monitors on them to figure out, okay, how can we. How can we figure out what is going on with the human body so that we can make the best product possible to increase their performance from a product standpoint? So the translation from Penn State to Nike was actually pretty fluid because of that, right? Going from Penn State lab to then Nike lab. The other part was the amount of Penn State graduates that were at the Nike uh, sports research lab when I was there. For perception analyst, it's very similar to the psychology of product. That's essentially what you're looking at. So we would be on different projects and each project would have different point people. So a perception analyst like myself, which I'll go into explain a little bit, biomechanist, and then maybe you have a product person, designer, whatever it may be, all these different people with different responsibilities. Biomechanist might look at, for example, the LeBron commercials where you see all the white dots and you're trying to understand the angles and the torque and okay and the force, right? So they're looking at those numbers. Those numbers are then telling them how much cushioning should probably, you know, be in that shoe, what the ride should look like. And then as a perception analyst, it's my job to confirm that from a psychological standpoint. So what I'm answering is the athlete or consumer perceiving the product in the manner it was intended to be perceived. Does that make sense? So if I then bring an athlete in, the shoe is ready. They're on, let's say, draft three, okay, or rendition number three. They put the shoe on. They have no idea what they're putting on. There's a shroud. They can't see the shoe. They go for a run. Well, when they come back from the run, then they've got to figure out a survey. How was the ride? How was the fit? Did you feel faster? Did you feel like you had the support you needed, et cetera? And so I want to know what their thoughts are. And essentially, we know we're there when the perception of the product is matching what the product was intended to do. 
that is a finished product. And so we were looking at things probably, I would say three years to 18 months out in that range. That is what makes me respect the company of Nike so much is that people think, oh yeah, it's about making cool stuff with really cool colorways and so forth. There's a lot of science that goes into the product. And I would argue that there's more science going into the products now than it was when I started in 2005. That's fascinating. That has to be an amazing <laughs> job right there. It's super cool. Wow. With being an entrepreneur, you grew up very quickly or you're forced to grow up very quickly. And so we, we've had another, uh, we've had a number of other entrepreneurs on the show. We always like for them to give us advice for the budding entrepreneur that may be out there listening to Lion Legacy. So what advice do you have for entrepreneurs? Or if you want to put a finer point on it, what's your message for aspiring black female entrepreneurs? So I'm going to do both if you don't mind. Sure. So absolutely. With, yeah. okay. With the broader entrepreneurs, I would just say, follow the vision and the passion. I think that is so much of our playbook as an entrepreneur, that spirit is put there for a reason. You've got to find your resources to figure it out, but keep following that vision and try to decrease the doubt. The specifics to a black female would be the same, but I would add, give yourself permission to be yourself. And what I mean by that is rather than trying to fit in a box to be accepted or change who you are culturally in order to move something forward, understand that your unique set of experiences are just as valuable. So staying true to who you are is actually probably filling a gap in the market that doesn't exist. Great advice there on both fronts. So thank you for sharing yeah, that. For sure. Yeah, thanks. We are actually now going to put you in the Lions Den, brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride. Start talking a little bit more about Penn State. Just remember, when you want to show off your Penn State pride, visit lions-pride.com for the latest and greatest apparel and merchandise. That is true. We were there a couple months ago. There you go. <laughs> yes. Love it. <laughs> it's <Awesome>. the best. <laughs> So Rashana, I think you actually answered my the first question. So usually we ask our guests, what, how did the university prepare you for the career that you have? But we really actually spent a lot of time talking about it. I'm if you have add anything to add. So, so yeah, certainly. And then also you're from Texas. How'd you even get to Penn State? So I'll ask, answer how I got to uh, Penn State first from Texas. So remember that only child thing we were talking about before? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I graduated high school in 98. So just from the cultural political standpoint, I was trying to get out of Texas and get far away as possible. <laughs> so when I had looked at US News, remember, we would get those magazines yep. and it would rank sure. the colleges. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to focus on kinesiology for my, my junior year of college because I was transferring and Penn State was ranked really high. And Penn State had the highest alumni endowment. So to me, that told me that people graduated and still loved the university. And so I applied to Penn State and somehow got accepted and ended up there. And the beauty of that with the alumni is that actually paid off. So I got into IMG 100% because of the connections at Penn State and Dr. Euclidson and so forth. Then when I went to Nike and interviewed, my hiring manager went to Penn State. He was at Penn State and then also was at a different school at one point with Dr. Slobodoff. And so when he asked me who my professor was at Penn State, I said, Dr. Slobinoff, he said, really? 
and was silent. I thought I lost the job at that point because I was like, wait, something must have happened between them. <laughs> Lo and behold, I had no idea that they knew each other very well. And so that meant he knew exactly what my training was, got hired. Two other people from Penn State were in the lab. And then the director of the lab was also Penn State. Love it. Yeah. Hey, so listener, I know we, we sound like a broken record, but you see the theme here, right? The Penn Staters are everywhere. They help you in your network. You know, when you hit that jackpot, or I guess it's not that big of a jackpot of when you're interviewing somewhere and you, oh, you went to Penn State, right? Bingo. Score. You're golden. Bingo. Bingo. Don't we have the most EOs? Like something like that. The most CEOs in the nation. Like if you oh, look yeah. at the so, Penn State. Yeah. That's right. That ranking came out last year. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that Mark Parker was a CEO in Nike at that time that, too. I forgot yeah. That. Also yeah. Penn State. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you mm-hmm. go. Amazing. So this is the toughest question of the podcast. Favorite Penn State memory. <laughs> Do you remember how much it was snow and how class never got canceled? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. We mm-hmm. do. So while the whole time I was in five years, there was one day when classes got canceled. I remember that too. Yeah. Ross, I think you probably remember that. Yeah. You? Right. It, yeah. Yeah. I we think were all shocked. Like, we're like, what do you mean the canceled? Shocked. <laughs> yeah. Shocked. Yeah. It was in the teens, right? I mean, the number of inches we got, I think. Was a lot yeah it was insane and i just remember how much i enjoyed that day number one because i was shocked that class was canceled because otherwise we were like trying to get to class in (laughs) the little pathways that had been cleared but that day was so peaceful because the campus was just kind of quiet because you couldn't access the lawns and so forth the way you usually could so like going out and having a snow fight and things just being like very crisp and quiet and cold that was one of my favorite days and I had a great group of girlfriends that I've known now for 21 years and that day was special just because we had an awesome time and it was the only time like I said ever shut down so that was my favorite day there if you go on Instagram now because I think it snowed last night at Penn State you'll see all these (laughs) posts of people sledding down I saw one with a canoe I'm like where are they getting this canoe oh yeah (laughs) Oh, they we come prepared with their, with, with their gear. You know, it's funny. I'm like, I don't know, call me a negative Nelly. As you mentioned, that snow day, the first thing that popped into my mind was trying to dig out my car. I'm like, that of wasn't course. that much fun. I, not that I had to go anywhere, but you had to dig out your car. Very, but very I had my mature. roommates very, to help me, though. Very was, mature of you, Ross. Yeah. Even back then. What can I say? <laughs> so, Rashawn, if you could go back and, and visit with yourself when you transferred into Penn State your junior year, mm-hmm. as you're about to step foot on campus at the beginning of that year, if you could look back, what advice would you have given yourself at that time? Just to trust the process. I think that going to Penn State, getting in the right major and making connections with those professors and then figuring out where that can lead outside of Penn State, is all you have to do. Like, yes, show up and make good grades and yes, make those contacts, but from there, it truly does figure itself out. And I don't think I understood how much Penn State connection was going to snowball for me in terms of my career and even personal life, to be quite honest. So I am appreciative of Penn State for that, but I wish I would have known then to lean into it and maybe not stress so much about it. And and how do you feel connected to the university today? Are you still in touch with Dr. Slobanoff and, and some of the other professors? Yeah. So my first and foremost connection is my girlfriends. Like my best friends are still from 
Penn State, which is insane. I had no idea that I was going to go there and have some of the best friendships of my life for the rest of my life. And I would say that there's probably about five or six of us that are still very tight. So that's number one. Second, yes, would be my mentors, whether they were professors or administrators that changed the course of my life. I didn't have to get a full ride to Penn State. That was Dr. Slobinoff and his belief. And the domino effect of that and how much that propels someone forward is huge. And so I'm very appreciative of that. And then I would say also with the football team, we had that bad stint where they cleaned house and the scandal and everything. So much has been rejuvenated, even though it's not Joe Paterno, Coach Franklin's been a, done a pretty good job at welcoming alumni. I'm not a guy who played football, but those connections that existed and the people who are back at the university as a result has allowed those connections to live on. And so I'm appreciative that, that the university is still welcoming and still open and that you can tie relationships and knowledge from outside the university, bring that back, and then just bring everything full circle. Love it. I got to say, we couldn't have kicked off uh, 2022 with a better guest. So well, you, you. you you have set the 2022 bar extremely high. That's right. Uh, and just love kind of everything that you've achieved, accomplished, your ability to adapt to different situations and ultimately help people along the way from a, a mind, body, spirit perspective. Once again, thanks for joining us and, and certainly wish you continued success along the way. Thank you so much. And I appreciate this network too, and just continuing to be in, involved. The reality, like you said, is there's so many Penn State alums. So to have another avenue for connection is fantastic. So thank you for what you're doing, because I'm sure that we'll stay connected. And then everyone who's been a part of the show, who knows what we do. Maybe we all get together when the pandemic is done. That would be fantastic. I like that Light, idea. Lion Legacy Reunion. There you go. There we I go. Like that. In, that would, that would be a talented group of people in one room, I will tell you that Yeah, much. for sure. So, well, yeah. great. We, we always end the podcast with, we are... Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.